Um, I'm done with denial. I'm now into anger. And How about panic? Do you get to, when do you get to panic? Yeah, there's no panic in there. It's just what are they? It's like let's see. I always I can always get four. I can't get the fifth. There's, there's the, the, the fifth. The fifth stage is jet blue. <laughs> okay. There's uh, there's uh, 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 denial, anger, uh, uh, bargaining. Acceptance, depression, and then acceptance. And well, then, and then jet blue. Resigna- resignation, then acceptance. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's, it's kind of all the same thing, but yeah, that's right. So, so I've moved into anger. Well, no, was, the, the, if you're gonna do it, you can do it. Do it right. But but whatever the la- whatever the however many steps there are, you add another step and label it jet blue. Jet blue. Jet blue. Uh, <laughs> okay, now. Uh, our friends at Popular Mechanics have given us a list of uh, of four amazing do-it-yourself airplanes. Oh, we're doing this now? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's incredible. They also gave me something to pick but, on. And, but on he, didn't tell, he, he didn't tell me to pull up the list. That's, that's usually the, the sign that he's getting ready to push record, you see. Uh-huh. And, 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 okay, there's a list. And that's when I know that we're you know, back uh, to... to I, was, I was trying to make the segue into it a little bit more seamless, a little smoother, you know, kind of like... We're, we're back to outside voices. Is that what it is? Okay. <laughs> so they've given us four airplanes here, that uh, the four amazing DIY, do-it-yourself airplanes, uh, and how to build your own. Um, so the first one is this guy, David Rose, in San Diego, has something that he calls the RP-4. I, I, this is a bizarre-looking airplane. You, are you looking that, at the picture? That's a really cool-looking airplane. Yeah. The, that so is really cool. It, it's He's going to have CG issues, I think. Well, you Maybe would think, not. wouldn't you, huh? I would think you did the math. You would, that's exactly right. So the, the, the engine, reason the engine's far enough out, and the cockpit is pretty much the same distance from center lift on the wing. That's not bad. Yeah. You so know, the th- thinking about it, well, I think not- he's got two tandem V8s up there under that cowl. Oh man! If, I'm sorry, yeah, viewers, I'm just, trying. To, if, I'm trying to describe this for you, but they're not letting me here. The airplane. If that, if, if, that, uh, if that was just like an IO five twenty, yeah, he, he he might be a little tail heavy. The airplane we're looking at is a uh, metal skinned. Uh, it, it's neither high wing nor low wing. It's sort of a mid wing. Um, uh, no, it's a it's a low wing with it's a low wing. Is it? It's a low wing. Yeah, the, the, the hydro makes it look like it's mid wing. Okay, but. and. Um, and uh, tricycle gear, uh, as David mentions, you, David, you said it has two engines. I know it has two props. It has. Uh, it's got two sets. It's got two pillars. Coaxial that's, props that's on it. That's insane. Yeah, and uh, but the thing is, so it's it's longer than you might expect. Um, but the thing that really makes it distinctive is that the cockpit is not sort of where you would expect it over the wing area. It's actually halfway between between the wing and the tail, and. Uh, and that's to offset. That's to work in balance with those two big motors up front. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I have no doubt. That's it's, that's one of the few tricycle geared airplanes that when you taxi, you want to S turn. <laughs> Could be, huh? Could be. So that's uh, uh, David Rose. Obviously, built the overpowered RP4 for speed. The experimental counter rotating propellers, inspired by a NASA project, run at an impressive 4,800 RPM. Yeah. Okay. Um, I got an I got an uh, like a um, one of those expensive uh, mixers that'll do about the same thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, Rose can connect. That's right, David. So you're right. That's two engines. Rose can connect both propellers directly to their engines without heavy reduction gearing, and the props can change pitch for maximum. Speed. But these coaxial props. I thought this was a concept that had been been uh, proven, you know, not to work. That there's there's just the comp the air between these two props. 
Well, that's what we, we, we've talked about that, where we talked about the, the most efficient propeller design being a single blade. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, but uh, there are some benefits other than the efficiency of the propeller that accrue to counter-rotating, concentrically hubbed propellers. Really? Like this what? Is true. This is true. P-factor. Uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, counter-rotating them, that's a good thing, for sure. Okay. Yeah, but tor- I would tor- think that the, it cancels out. Yeah, torque yes. MP factor, depending on, on uh, how the engines are installed. But it would seem to me that the, that the rear of the two propellers has got to be, be working on incredibly disturbed air. And, yeah, um, yeah. The, the one good thing about it is because they are, are counter-rotating, some of the inefficiency is, is recovered or, or, or minimized. Mm-hmm. I think I think I'm not educated on on propeller aerodynamics, but I would I, I can see I can see where some of the the effects uh, of the disturbed air behind the first propeller would be mitigated or, or eliminated um, with a counter rotating propeller. I don't know if that's in fact the case. I can certainly see where it might be. And it's great for slicing cold cuts. Yes. So that's David yeah, Rose's. It, that's, I, that thing will flat go through a side of beef, I'm telling that's you. That's right. That's <laughs> David Rose's RP4. Next on the list is uh, Corey Bird's Symmetry. I think I've seen this airplane, or one inspired by it, at Oshkosh. The, this is a sexy-looking airplane. I like this airplane. This is a... Uh, t- yeah, I think I've seen that, too. Low-wing tail dragger. Very kind of sleek but curvy. Looks, you know... Um, it's a T-tail tail drive. T-tail, T-tail too. Um, um, it it's just looks very cool. Yeah, I, I was I was looking at it, it, that's just the light on it. Uh, a couple of strange um, lighting effects. Uh-huh. It looked like it was molded into the wingtip, the far wingtip. Oh, I see. Yeah, I think that's just. Yeah, I think you're yeah, right. I think that's just a little bit of weird that's light. Dust um, on my monitor. But this, if this is the one that I've seen at Oshkosh, it looks even sexier in person. It's just a sleek looking airplane. This is the airplane that won one of those races. Yeah, right. Here we go. Uh, uh, the labor of love proved so exquisite that it won a grand champion prize at EAA. Oh, that's no, that's the builder prize. Didn't it win? D- David, you pay more attention to this than me. The, those, uh, those races that come to Oshkosh every summer from, you know, I don't know where, you know, Akron. Oh, or, the cross country race. Yeah. The big cross country race that, uh, it comes in every year, and there's a bunch of categories, and I think that this is airplane or one very much like it won the 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 big you know grand prize, whatever the fastest best because it's categories right. But uh, what's first of all, what's that race called? Help me remember. It's uh, well, there's a couple of races. There's like um, I don't know, the Air Venture Invitational or something. I, um, yeah, the Air Venture Cup. I thought that's Air the Venture one I'm thinking of. Yeah, okay. And, Cup. Uh, that's the one. And there's also another like a cafe uh, an efficiency related race. Uh, that, that terminates at Oshkosh each year. Yeah, that's right. There is that, that miles per gallon or, you know, yeah. whatever. Anyways, this is Corey Bird. In 1989, Corey Bird was a shop fabricator at Scaled Composites, the famed aviation designer Burt Rutan's company, when he decided to use his knowledge of composite construction to build, an aeron- to build aeronautical art. And then the quote from him is, I wanted to show what I could do, he says. Over the next 14 years, he conceived and created a two-seat airplane he calls Symmetry. A sleek aircraft can reach 284 miles an hour at 3,000 RPM. Clearly, this author that, has a and, thing about engines. And that's engines. probably only maybe an IO-800. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, an IO-180. Yeah. Uh, that's scooting. Yeah. So that one's pretty cool. Uh, see, what's the next one? Oh, the next one was one we've seen, all right? The next one is Mark Stull, uh, the guy who built the really funky ultralights oh, yeah. oh, that we've, yeah. been, we've yeah. been talking about at Sun and Fun every year. And he brings a new one to Sun and Fun every year. And this is the one that he brought last year that has the uh, circular-shaped tail. Uh, and 
Uh, yeah, we saw it in Paradise City. Exactly Senate. right. Yes. Yeah. Home built sure. airplane pilots are motivated by more than aerodynamics. Mark Stull built Lucky Stars, a four and a half foot diameter ring, uh, oh, with a four and a half foot diameter ring tail. Took some clever engineering and some hair raising test flights flights to make it work. Uh, Stull added a hydraulic damper to ensure that the tail didn't swing too far to the side, and balanced the tail by adding weights to the ring. Uh, he then moved the seat forward a little bit. That is a cool airplane. In some ways, it's a very, very traditional ultralight, sort, is, of a, yeah. sort of a quicksilverish configuration, but with this circular tail, which is very cool, very cool. And and I think I talked about it on the in, at Sun and Fun. When you watch it fly, that whole circle just is is pivoting. I mean, it, it should. You'd expect it to, but you can really see it pivoting around. I mean, you know, it's working hard. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm probably no more than your typical, uh, you know, rudder on a on a yeah. traditional wing, but you don't a uh, traditional tail, but you don't see that as clearly because it's it's smaller or whatever. And here, because the whole thing is moving, I mean, you see it wiggling all over the place. It looks pretty cool. And and it would seem almost inherently counterbalanced. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, worry, you know, about, aerodynamically. I, I worried about the uh, the uh, the engineering of the inta- attachment because you know because the whole thing has to move. It's on sort of this gimbal connection, and uh, just worried that that was a, a, a sturdy enough connection for it not to to you know get torn off of the thing. But so far, so good. And and this guy seems to know what he's doing. He builds a new uh, funky design every year, and uh, he keeps coming back for more. So he must be doing something right. And. Uh, in, in the last one, we profiled in Air Venture today in 2010. Yeah? Tell us about this one. What's this? The Savor. Uh, young man, Chris Christensen. Uh, the uh, folks here at uh, Popular Mechanics describe him as a self-taught 31-year-old amateur building. Uh, he designed and flew his third home-built airplane. Uh, the Savor is just is, is a high-wing, two-seater uh I believe it's a two-seater, and he basically scratch-built this high-wing, cantilevered, tricycle gear uh, to go just short of 200 miles an hour. That's a good-looking airplane. It is a very good-looking airplane, and I believe Sport Aviation even went on to feature it in an issue subsequent to the uh, 2010 Air Venture. Yeah. So that's the four: David Rose, Corey Bird, Mark Stoll, and Chris Christensen. Uh, so, uh, Boo and Wah. Yeah, that. This, yeah. I fly any one of these four. These are cool airplanes. Uh, yeah. Well, there's. Okay, yeah, okay. Is there what? No, I was just I was just clicking more um, arrows. Yeah. You know, and and one of the yeah, companions. Yeah. You know, it's like everybody has recommendations now. Whenever you, every, anytime you go on the web and you're looking at a page, there'll be you know. And if you're interested in this, you might be interested in this. Well, apparently, if you're interested in this Ford do-it-yourself airplanes article, then you might also be interested in in popular mechanics story about what really happened at Area 51. So, yeah, I know. I'm not sure how they make that connection. Uh, I'd buy it. And I'd what buy really it just for that. Reno, which is really not panning out. Yeah. So yeah. let's see now. There's a longer story about these four airplanes and about the people who built them. and uh, So, anyways, that's pretty cool. Let's see. There was something else I wanted to talk about here. Let's see now. Oh, so we talked last week about the uh, Mythbusters episode where they built the airplane. They repaired the airplane out of, out of duct tape. They, they, they confirmed the myth that we all believed anyways, the, the quote-unquote myth, making finger quotes. Um, and then there was someone, a listener forwarded to me a story um, about how uh, a, an, a, an airliner, com- uh, a commercial airliner, uh, 
apparently repaired one of their jetliners, Ryanair. Passengers with Ryanair have long been accustomed to the airline cutting financial corners. But when one party found ground crews applying sticky tape to a cockpit window, they feared the penny pinching had gone too far. Apparently, <laughs> apparently. Now, if you read the story, it may not be quite as as drastic as as the headline wants you to think it is. Um, I guess what happened was that one of these windows had a very slight, I don't know, not even a crack necessarily, but a blemish of some sort. And and they wanted to reinforce it. The way, this is the way I'm reading it. Maybe you guys have more engineering knowledge than I, and you can tell me. Well, what I, what I the account I heard or read was, um, I think maybe they had replaced the window or they were reseating the window or something like that. And the way these things are designed... Um, what they need is is just some sealant. Once they're mounted in place, a sealant kind of kind of seals the little gaps and 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 helps out a little bit with the with the fitment. Um, and what I understood was that they had replaced or remounted this window and had fresh sealant on it. It's pro it's pro, it's pro sealed. It, it it dries hard as a rock within 24 hours. But as long as the rest of the structure is as it should be, there, there shouldn't be really any issues with with pressurization or the safety of the glass or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but to help this pro seal set up and continue to operate the airplane, they had to put some tape on it. Right. And so apparently they didn't get their 100-mile-hour tape or 100-knot tape, or in their case, you know, 500-knot tape or 400-knot tape. Well, uh, you know, here's the, here's the issue with that. Jeb just very nicely and succinctly described, you know, the, the pro seal, which helps keep air in. Right. Okay? That's yeah. a pressurized airplane, right? There's and, a reason... And, and there's, there's a, a reason, reason why that windshield is so thick. Part of it is to carry the pressurization load. And there's also a reason, you know, a lot of that's installed from the inside, if not all of it. Okay. Yes. Right. <laughs> so it does it, it, it as long as it's strong enough, it won't blow out unless something hits it. But if the seal is soft, if the sealant is soft, yeah. and the airplane starts to pressurize while the sealant is still soft, the air pressure inside is going to find a way out. Mm-hmm. It's going to start to move the sealant downwind, if you will. In 100-knot tape, masking tape, uh, electrician's tape, uh, gaffer's tape, scotch tape, uh, recording tape, none of those tapes are going to hold up to the air pressure trying to squeeze its way out from the inside. Mm -hmm. That's why you're supposed to wait for that stuff to harden. Yeah, well, they didn't want to because they needed to get the flight going. So they yeah, but what I, I'm I'm puzzled at the brain trust that thought that this was going to hold air while it was soft. I, I don't think they necessarily thought it was going. Oh, well, the the sealant was going to hold air while it's soft. Well, okay, yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't it, know that. I don't know that the sealant really had to hold that much air because I think the mechanical installation of the window. Uh, would hold most of that air. And if there's any air pressure on Pro Seal, it's going to be you know, probably more from the front of the airplane than from the inside of the airplane. Well, it seems to me that, that these front-facing windows must be a different kind of engineering challenge, though, because um, although I can, I don't know, it would seem to me they'd mount these windows from the inside and that way the pressure forces them outward and they kind of get pressed into place by the air pressure but the front facing windows also have to deal with the oncoming air from as the airplane's moving through the through the sky and it and i can easily imagine now maybe i'm wrong but i can easily imagine that the pressure 
from the from the velocity of the airplane the air pressure on the outside of the window is way higher than the air pressure pushing out from from the pressurization well actually yeah, yes there's or no. a pressure drop across the glass because of the airflow well, is that too? Okay. I, I, but yeah. Plus, plus obviously, you know, it's very complicated math. Go ahead, Jeb. Although we, we think of jets traveling at, you know, 500, um, you know, 450, 500 knots, and they are, but that's true airspeed. The, the indicated calibrated airspeed is down in the 200s. Yeah. Really? That low? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I know that. Yeah. When the when the when the jets in, at altitude and, and, and uh, cruising at a high Mach, yeah, absolutely it is. So. And then, you get up um, into the teens, that, and you got that, a few square pounds per square yeah. inch, or a few pounds per square inch on the inside. Yeah, the true airspeeds just aren't that high. Yeah, yeah, right. Obviously, a very complex, uh, a complex math and physics going on here, and engineering, and but the tape didn't do it because apparently the tape started to peel away in flight, and the crew decided that. Uh, There's a a cliche here, but uh, they basically said, let's land. Let's land just in case. And so they did, and everybody... Yeah, figure 20 minutes in, uh, and they took off from Stansted, uh, headed to uh, Latvia, uh, about 1,000 miles. Uh, That 20 minutes in, if they're getting a standard climb out of the airplane and out of ATC, they're going to be somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000, depending on how steep they hold the climb. But 1,000 feet a minute is pretty nominal for these, and it's easy for the controllers to figure out the math and all that. So figure 1,000 foot a minute for 20 minutes. He's about 20,000 feet. There's a pretty good pressure differential between the inside the pressure vessel and outside in the atmosphere at 20,000 feet. Yeah. That's why we humans either have to have pressurized cabins or oxygen. Right. And, and don't forget also, which I think is one of the reasons for the sealant, um, the temperature changes. That's right. It gets bloody cold up there. Yeah, and it changes pretty quickly, relatively quickly. Uh, changes relatively quickly. If it's going standard rate, it's what, three and a half degrees per thousand feet? Uh, um, standard lapse two de- rate, two, two degrees centigrade. Yeah, yeah, three and yeah. Half. yeah. So, uh, three, three I, I don't think we said this cool. to Eli for listeners' benefit. It's a, this was a seven thirty-seven they were talking about, and uh, right, yeah, that's all Ryanair flies. They're like southwest of Europe. They fly one type, seven thirty-seven. So, anyways, so uh, you know, clearly this is a this is a this is a case for MythBusters. All right, I think we need them to get them to, <laughs> to test this thing and tell us what really was going on there. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 260. Ooh, another milestone passed of... Uh, the Sticky Tape episode, two. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Take two. Uh, the, the, the Sticky episode, that's right. Two. Of uh, Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got now. Sky riders they, now. They, they, does that say you can't i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight clear land turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta we're recording this episode on uh, Friday evening, October 28th, 2011, and joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends. First of all, uh, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? 
I'm fine. I'm warm. Uh, I'm dry relatively. Uh, got some stuff done today. I've been been uh, trying to get done for a while. Uh, having a good day. Yeah, rub it in about that warm part. But okay, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I you will. are. You've you've earned that right to. Uh, you know, you made the right choice. Well, you're welcome here anytime. I know. So. I am. I know. I know. And also out there is uh, Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you? Uh, just lovely, lovely, nice fall day. What, what little leaves are left on the trees from the summer killer heat wave are actually putting on a pretty nice show here. So uh, uh, got to hang out with some aviator types earlier in the week at a, at, at a little dinner gathering and spent a little time with a, a, a former company CEO this week talking airplanes. So it's been an airplane intensive week. Love it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you from high Yay! atop Lookout Point in uh, beautiful, but it did get finally to freezing this morning, Nottingham, New Hampshire. In beautiful, uh, snowy, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Yeah, I mean, it snow didn't, you know, it, 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 and it didn't actually snow here. We, we seem to benefit from the lake. I live actually on a, a medium-sized lake. And uh, the lake, you know, has enough influence on the on the environment that when you get in these marginal snowstorms, it didn't actually snow here, but half a mile out, out the road away from the lake, there was there was a, a pretty serious dusting of snow this morning, and uh, um, and and Jeb was telling us about a mutual friend or hit one of his friends who who he's introduced us to, who uh, is in uh, in sort of upstate New York, uh, and uh, they had some serious snow. Apparently, this morning, mm-hmm. so snowing all over the place. Uh, winter is coming, and uh, well, according to some of the long-term meteorological progs, the climate guys, not the daily weather guys, are saying that uh, some parts of the country are going to are supposed to be in for an above-average snowfall winter this year, including here in the Midwest. So we're supposed to be up about fifty percent, several big chunks of the country. In terms of what inches on the ground, is that? What? Yeah, yeah. In terms of inches, to, uh, re- you know, recordable inches. Okay, well, you can um, have it. I don't want it. All right, I'll, I'll pass. I'll take it. I'll take it. I still have an all-wheel drive vehicle in the in the household, so yeah, you need, uh, we're you need, good. We're good to go. You need it for the ski slopes down there, right? Oh yeah. No, oh, yeah. you don't have any ski slopes there. It's very nearly as flat as Florida. Uh, we if, if you get a few miles west and north of here, yeah, you're right, very nearly. Yeah. So uh, there's a there's a street down here named Lockwood Ridge, <laughs> and every time I drive past this street, I just shake my head. There's not a ridge within 200 fucking miles of this place. Okay. Well, there's a neighborhood here in Wichita called Hillside. Yeah. And it literally is the highest ground in town. Uh, and it's close to a hundred feet higher in elevation than the neighborhood where I live here. So, uh, it's all uphill to there. So let's see now we, we talk about, uh, engine power plants and alternative fuels from, uh, from time to time. And, uh, a listener, Brad K, uh, uh, asked, uh, in Twitter said, uh, uh, speaking of alternative propulsion, do you know anything about nuclear powered aircraft? And then he said, Google it. And so I did and gave you guys a couple links here. Um, and I'd sort of heard of this. I, this wasn't total news to me that uh, the government, the military, I guess, had experimented with uh, with uh, nuclear powered aircraft way back when. And uh, fortunately, or at least publicly, have abandoned the idea. But uh, they were going to use nuclear powered aircraft to carry nuclear bombs. So you got to figure it's a, it's a wash. You know, it's like 
Well, so they could like refuel off a bomb if they needed well, to. Well, no, so it's you know it's like no, 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 no. They were all in on this. Okay, <laughs> they were all what? Chips were on the table. <laughs> they had no choice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So well, you uh, know, it's 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 conceivable to des- that you could design a power plant that used nuclear energy as a heat source. Yeah, but then you got to have a medium in between the heat and the drive, which traditionally has been steam. Uh, and there have been steam-powered aircraft. I, I guess I know that. Um, I, I keep forgetting, David, that you actually have some expertise in the area of nuclear power plants. and uh, um, just, a, just a small amount. Yeah. Just, and uh, So do you know anything about these airplane programs? I mean, how far did they get? Did they actually fly airplanes with nuclear power plants on them? You know, it was news to me. Uh, I thought it was amazing that we could fly an aircraft carrier on the surface at 37 knots on, based on... Uh-huh. David? You went away, David. You'll be back. Jeb, are you still there? Yes, sir. I'm okay. coming out of reactors. Uh, but getting a plant down, am I still here or am I gone? You're here, David. Go ahead. Hello? Continue. Hello. David? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, it, it, it's conceivable you could get it down, but I don't know whether anything was ever flown with this. It was kind of news to me because I was always in awe of the fact that you could make enough steam from a nuclear reaction to power a ship or a submarine. Well, obviously you can. They they did and still do. Oh yeah, obviously we've got several yeah. out there. Yeah. So I'm reading this Wikipedia article. I had known that they had done this, and I, I thought it was with a B thirty six, and that apparently is the case. But the the problem is just too inefficient. It's too much uh, weight and too much lead shielding and all this kind of stuff. Um, it was it was never used to power an airplane by itself. The, it was uh, they put a reactor in an airplane and you know took it a, flew the airplane on its normal engines and and uh, you know ran the reactor and, and and you know checked it out and see what you know was it practical and it's just not practical. Yeah. I, I read an article a while if back. You want to get real picky about it? Yeah, we do have spacecraft. Well, that's that's where I was going to go next. Is is we do have and I think there have. There hasn't. There's been some testing, but there hasn't been a nuclear-powered spacecraft. There, there's been some some um, uh, coming close to that with some ion-powered. I think some, there's been some ion-powered deep space satellites. But uh, um, you know, I, I am not a rocket scientist, and I did not sleep mm-hmm. at Holiday no, Express last night. What I was going to say is, uh, you talk about uh, David. You talk about uh, ships and submarines. I, I saw an article a while back, and it could be quite a while back, but uh, that that the military is actually reconsidering whether or not these nuclear power plants are a good way to uh, that they were considering uh, making the next generation of like aircraft carriers not have nuclear power. Um, the, the the rationale was that it, it you know the whole idea of the nuclear power plant was that you didn't need to refuel it very often and um, that's correct yeah it, it it basically could go years and years right all you need is to replenish the water that you use and it, the water's got to be of particular chemistry but it turns uh, out that- and be able to recycle the oil. But it turns out that that it never ever really became an issue that it was a problem providing even a nuclear uh, yeah, correction a uh, uh, an aircraft carrier with sufficient traditional fuel, um, and so and yeah just, because the airplanes weren't nuclear powered they yeah. still well, needed petroleum products. There's that, and you know, there's five thousand men and women on on board to kind of need something fresh to eat every now and then. Yeah, that's so, right. So getting getting you know whatever fuel oil to it, you know, to run it tr- conventionally, uh, never turned out to be a problem, and 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 it just kind of was, and and the, uh, 
you know, all the all the problems or not problems, but the challenges with maintaining a nuclear power plant in that environment just wasn't worth the the uh, the, the the limited benefit. Um, there there are some. They were talking about sub leaving them in subs. There are there is a compelling case for subs because the subs want to go down underwater for long periods of time and and you know not have to produce you know diesel exhaust or whatever. And uh, yeah, this basically made you know long term dives possible right. on on submarines because you could do uh, you know at, at best the old diesel electric boats could go two two and a half maybe three days without recharging the batteries if you kept the load low and your speeds down uh carbon dioxide scrubbers uh to there to help remove that uh, uh allegedly harmless gas from the atmosphere lest it poison the crew mm-hmm. uh they got that taken care of uh and they can reload the atmosphere with breathable air without actually coming to the surface by by chemical processes treating the air inside uh it's that every once in a while you know the the crew's going to run out of food anyway and that means popping up somewhere and taking on supplies. But you can keep that puppy down there for as long as the food lasts. And based on several decades of experience with our, our boomer boats in particular, the, the missile launchers, uh, six, seven weeks underwater uh, just doesn't tax the system at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because so. they're not running on batteries. They're still running on steam power. Right. right. Yeah. Now, they are going back to, and this is about as far GA as I think we've been in a while. Uh, There has been a move for nuclear power submarines, I understand, to go back to uh, uh, electric drives as opposed to direct drives off the the steam turbine. Oh, I thought that's what they were all along. They started out electric drives. Yeah. The the Nautilus was an electric drive. Yeah. My training was on a boat uh, system that used electric motors. The big turbine turned a generator. Right. And that's not the um, way they all did it? No, they, they thought that they could do better and go faster and have better response uh, and simplify things by just making it a direct drive off of the reduction gear system. And at off low steam speeds turbine? and low loads, it's actually pretty handy. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But when you start that. to go fast, it's a lot noisier. Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing, right? Anyways, well, well that's pretty you interesting. know also yeah. what they're what's that, Jim? Another new technology they're putting on aircraft carriers is uh, rather than a steam-powered catapult. Oh yeah, it's an electromagnetic catapult. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's um, uh, software controllable. Uh, the 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 quality of the stroke of the catapult. Mm-hmm. Uh, is not as abrupt for one thing right. as the as the steam catapult. It can be sl- more slowly accelerated and and achieve the the same effect uh, while saving wear and tear on the mechanism, the airplane, the pilot, everything else. Yeah, that's and pretty, it uses that's, less that's energy. It loses less energy, so it's, it's it's looks like a pretty slick deal. And that's going into to I guess the the next you know floating city that we build. Right. Well, well I, I think s- I saw a sticker on an aircraft carrier on one of the, the, the military shows, and I could have sworn the sticker said, this cat system derived from a Toyota Prius, but I think that was a joke. <laughs> so thanks to listener Brad Kay for uh, suggesting that we uh, look into uh, nuclear-powered aircraft. You know, what, they, what they have to do is 
they have to just step on the brakes. The carrier just has to step on the brakes a couple of times <laughs> to recharge the cats. And uh, it, it, it's it's kind of unfortunate for the for the um, the people up, you know, sitting in the in the in the bridge where the, they get the whiplash effect. But it, that's but the way it is. If nuclear-powered aircraft come along, uh, all three of us are willing volunteers to give it a test fly. So just well, just holler. Don't don't, don't speak so quickly. Yeah, for don't necessarily count me on this. <laughs> Uh, well, we'll have to have a chat about that. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that. <laughs> a nuclear-powered spacecraft, now sign me up for that. Yeah, yeah. Like so. All right. Now, here's a, a subject I want to talk about. I, this is tricky. I don't know exactly know how to, how to get into this subject. And, uh, um, and I'm not even sure if there's really a conversation here, but I want to ask about this. So I was, I was talking with a mutual friend recently, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, who was telling the story about how while he was still a pre-solo student, he was he was finishing up a flight lesson in a 152 with an instructor, and and a crop duster at the local field. They, I guess they must have taxied by this guy, or they were talking on the ramp or whatever. And the, the crop duster needed a ride to some nearby airport to pick up a part, and then he was going to fly back in the same airplane. And and the friend, quote unquote, said, or, or the friend slash CS and CSI or CFI um, said, "Why don't you go with my student?" All right. And so the so the the instructor got out, and the crop duster got in, and the student was in the left seat, and they took off. Now pre, if I've got the story right, pre solo student. All right. They took off and they flew to this other airport, and and the the whole punchline of the story was that 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 they were climbing out and they got to about eight hundred feet AGL, and the crop duster said, "Hold it, son, don't get so high, I get nosebleed or something like that." Okay, um, wow. yeah, funny story. <laughs> I, it really is a funny story. I don't tell it well because I wasn't trying to go for the punchline. All right, I'm trying to get into the whole subject. So so then people were saying something along the lines. Uh, the conversation went on. This was a forums thread. It had to do with our um, so the so the the uh, the uh, uh, crop duster was also a CFI, and that's what made the flight legal. All right. No. And then no. the person came back and said, "No, that's not really necessary because the crop duster was the pilot in command, but the student, even though the student was in a was flying, and and this gets me into the whole area of." So here's the real world. So that's kind of an extreme example. All right. The real world example that comes to mind is that we've all done this. We go flying. We take a friend of ours, a non-pilot friend flying. And the non-pilot friend is sitting in the right-hand seat. And you get up to cruise and you get leveled off and you get all trimmed out. And then you say, ooh, would you like to fly? All right. And, and they put their hands on the yoke and they think they're flying the airplane. And that's cool. And that gives them a nice little thrill. And it's a nice thing to do for your friend. But at least as far as I'm concerned, whenever I've done that, I, it's been very clear in my mind that they're not flying the airplane, that I'm still flying the airplane. And I just think that this student and the crop duster situation is a little different than that because the, the student pilot, was flying the airplane, probably flew the takeoff, probably flew the whole mission, all right? And how is that okay? Go ahead. Why is it not okay? Because it's not legal for a non-certificated pilot, a student pilot, to fly the airplane without a CFI. No, no, you're using incorrect verbiage. Okay, go ahead. What's right? Okay. 
what's what a, the the student pilot and in in, in in I think you said pre solo student pilot. That was my understanding. Okay. okay. Um, was not legally capable of serving as pilot in command. Right. Okay. That is a different distinction or that is a distinction from being sole manipulator of the controls. Yeah. And this is where it gets a little weird. It's okay, one of those clear things that the FAA came up with. Right. Well, if you think about it, it makes sense. It does. Okay. It, it does, but you have if, to think it, about it in FAA thinking. Right. Now, let's, let's, let's put aside for the moment the, the student pilot, pre-solo student pilot. Let's put in, in, in his place a 25,000-hour ATP. Right. Okay. If he's not current, 90 days, three bangs and goes, or there is some other recent, you know, recent, recency of experience issue associated with the operation, he can't be pilot in command either. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, I agree and, with and that. And the flight wouldn't so, be late. So the sea, there, you know, now, in, in those instances where they're training or uh, someone needs to get recurrent in the airplane, of course, you know, simulators work too. There's always going to be an instructor involved. Um, and the instructor is pilot in command. He is the one giving instruction. Uh, that if, you part- went, if you went out to get a BFR tomorrow or just get some dual, um, the pilot in command and the one making the decisions on the aircraft is the CFI. Uh, that not, I agree with. Not the CFI the pilot receiving instruction. But in the story, the the crop duster was not a CFI. He was obviously had thousands of hours. All right, but he was not a CFI. Here, different scenario, slightly different. All right, let's, well, let's, let's, let's let's assume for the moment that he is not a CFI. Yeah, okay? yeah. He he remains pilot in command. That's does true. He, does he not? It, what if he never touches the controls? He is still pilot, pilot in, in command. You're saying He's that's a legal flight? Absolutely. Really? really? See, yeah. I would never have thought that. I mean, slightly different scenario. Let me just ask the question in a different way. Plus, the dude was rather current single engine land. If you, yeah, well, okay, you know what I mean. All right, slightly different. <laughs> let me ask the question a different way. All right. Um, um, so, so me. All right, less than 500 hour private pilot. All right, and I get on into an airplane. Uh, I'm in the left seat, and I have a friend, a non-pilot friend, in the right hand seat who is really knows all this stuff. All right. If 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 I let that friend fly the entire flight, take off, cruise, landing, uh-huh. that's legal. Yeah, sure, absolutely. He can't you're, log you're, it as instructional flight. Well, of course not. And, and and you can't log it as sole manipulator time. I can't. You no. cannot. You're not the one manipulating the controls. Read the regs. Well, yeah, okay. You're still okay. PIC. And 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 the crop duster couldn't log it as sole manipulator time either i just can't it's just boggling my mind here i'm really having a hard time understanding who was the certificated pilot on these flights um, higdon higdon am I, am I wrong here anywhere what's that david do you agree with jeb's analysis uh, uh, absolutely oh no absolutely yeah uh now there's not a box in most log books that says sole manipulator i agree read the uh, regs read the reg on what is loggable time Right. Uh, um, sole manipulator or, you know, serving as, as, as a required crew member, um, in, in being otherwise rated and in, in recurrent for the, for the, uh, operation. End of discussion. I, okay. I mean, you guys know your stuff. I believe you. It just boggles my mind. I, I just, well, that you, I, and, and it's completely understandable, Jack. 
you're, yeah, really, you're, it you're is. Doing, it, it, you're doing yeah. one of the classic things that never generally works when trying to uh, unravel some of the federal air regulations, and that's to apply a logic standard to them. <laughs> but, okay. but I guess uh, and, part of and, and, and there is a little logic to this, yeah. and then there's a little that's not logical, and and it's still the rule. I, I tend to think of that rule as being rather logical. Of all of all the, it, it's it has its nuances and or those rules I should say. I think it's competing rules. Um, it has its nuances, but the end result is a favorable one. Yeah, a, and I don't really find much fault with with the way it's. If you if you look step back and kind of look at the zen of a lot of these operational regulations, they make a lot of sense in a, in a large picture type of, of fashion. Yeah. Um, but one, one, you know, so I'm trying to think this through and think about different, different ways that the rule kind of applies or how, how you would apply this kind of situation. And another case, which I do acknowledge is legal would be if I was flying an airplane, a highly automated airplane as such that I gave the, um, the, uh, um, autopilot, control uh-huh. and and clearly that's legal i can let the autopilot fly the airplane you know for his, well, you're for his, still sole okay. manipulator of the controls yeah and so so in a way exactly right you're the one you're the one who pushed the button yeah so in a way in a way my non-pilot friend in the right seat is just uh, uh, a, a a sort of you know flesh and blood autopilot yeah i just don't uh, i don't i don't want to know about having to reinflate him okay <laughs> Okay. I <laughs> la 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 la. I'm thinking we're going to hear from the listeners on this one, and I want to I want to read the thread. So uh, so uh, <laughs> go into the forums. Not about the inflatable part. I'm talking about the soul manipulator part, um, which is also a little racy when you get right down to it. Uh, anyways, okay. All right. So all right. I believe yeah, you guys. There are, just, other, there are other areas of life that we're, where where we could talk about soul manipulators. But exactly. None of them involve aviation. Exactly. We'll, yeah. We'll and we this. won't because we'll, this is a family we'll, podcast. We'll call this the self-abuse episode. Yeah. So some people, myself, I confess uh, included, uh, tried to get a little excited this past week about the fact that an Airbus A380 made an emergency landing. Um, and uh, and you guys just were, you know, yes, yeah, this is what I'm saying. You guys think this is just a non-event. Um, Hyberidad, this is from the uh, ZNews.com, uh, apparently an Indian news website. And uh, Hyberidad, the world's largest airplane, Airbus A380, made an emergency landing at Rajiv Gandhi International Airport near, near here Sunday, uh, an airport official said. The Emirates flight with 481 passengers on board was on its way from Bangkok to Dubai. Uh, the aircraft landed uh, safely. Let's see now. The pilot cited a technical snag in the aircraft as the reason for making the emergency landing at the airport. And uh, and obviously, you guys think this is just a non-event. This is just no big deal. I, I was, you know, me. I was looking for some juicy, you know, the beginnings of an A380 scandal here. You know, it's like, but you don't think so? I, don't nah, think so. I doubt it. Seriously. Wow. Uh, Okay. Even the, one, seen, one of the reasons why it doesn't really rise to the level of me giving in, in any body parts or functions uh, is that we've not heard another word about this since. Yeah. I agree. No, I agree. And, 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 and the options for for innocuous things. I've actually been in airplanes where we got big red flashing lights and horns on the flight deck, and nothing came of it. Right. 
Well, well part, another thing going on here too is, is and, and you just kind of touched on it, there's basically very little news on this at all. There's a story out of India that is on znews.india.india.com uh, um, about it, and, then, and that's apparently an AP story. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not an AP story. Um, and then there's a Gulf News dot com story on it uh they're both one of them's dated october 20 yeah okay i see what's going on uh yeah they're both dated october 23 basically the same story there's there's some different details and 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 that kind of thing but there's very little information here and none of this has made at least what i consider to be the mainstream aviation media Mm -hmm. um a uh, that tells you how you know how much of a nothing burger it really is. But B, it's just kind of curious that this hasn't gone into the mainstream media or or anything else because there's just no stories on a Google search for this. Yeah. Other than these two stories. Yes. Okay. It's it's really one, odd. Once, once so it, a passenger on an airplane, where you, we, we the, referenced a discussion a few minutes ago about the 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 plane that was 20 minutes out when the the tape started to peel. Uh, and they were probably about 20,000 feet. Well, we were in a similar s- status. We were about 25 minutes out. We were coming up on 30,000 MSL when the airplane pitched over to level and then immediately did a 180. <laughs> and yeah. for a guy who flies a lot and understands how airplanes and airline routings are going, it never occurred to me that that was a heading change from ATC. Not a 180-degree turn. Right. And we wound up back at the airport. And an idiot light had come on on the panel. It had had triggered a master caution warning. Uh, We got back on the ground. They took us off the airplane. An hour later, we were back on the same airplane and a whole hell of a lot more nervous about that. When the gate agent came out with the captain and said, we've tracked the problem to a faulty sensor turning on the light bulb that shouldn't have been turned on the sensor's been replaced the bulb's been replaced everything checks out we'll be boarding in a few minutes thanks for your patience it was jeb i love jeb's word it was a nothing burger yeah but we had three tv crews (laughs) yeah yeah we had three tv crews because the, the the infrequency of an airplane turning around and going back to where it started, uh, and and the only reason I could figure out we went back to where we started because there were no closer places to divert that could handle the airplane. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, All right. I, I just thought you I know thought... it was it was a bulb and a sensor, and and honest to God, I always figured it was just the bulb that they threw in the sensor just to make everybody comfortable. Right. Yeah. Right. It wasn't totally a waste of time to come back. I figured Jeb would be just just hot to 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 pile onto the world's ugliest airplane, and uh, um, you know. Well, now it, it doesn't change the aesthetics. <laughs> aesthetics. Yeah. yeah, I know. No. So, yeah. So speaking not. of the world's ugliest airplane, now we go to one of the world's most beautiful airplanes, at least new ones. Um, uh, Jeb, you called our attention to this beautiful air to air video of the uh, seven eighty seven Dreamliner. This yeah, is some, some Clay, Clay Lacy. Um, he does some good work. He should do this for yeah, a profession, shouldn't he? He really, he really should get into this full time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had po- posted this on their website or on a on a Facebook page or something. Uh, I came across it via um, James Fallow's blog on the Atlantic dot com, and uh, just it, it's some. It, there's no uh, ad. There's no text. 
There's no, you know, hard sell. It's about four and a half, five minutes of um, air to air with the 787 yeah. in, in ANA colors. And uh, I guess the first one to go into commercial service. And it's just some very neat flying, some very neat photography. Um, just, just a very nice video. Yeah. Very, and very, and very about 40 seconds into this, you get a shot that you don't normally see when Clay Lacey's Learjet is, is doing camera work. It's the top of the fuselage. Yeah, the top of the fuselage and the starboard engine. Right. But, oh, oh the man, fuel. what a piece of art. Yeah, yeah. Real, this airplane is. Yeah, real, yeah. You're talking about the shot that showed the uh, the uh, the camera ship. Yeah, yeah. yeah it yeah. showed a little bit of the fuselage and the starboard engine the cell. Uh, usually, when that that position is being used uh, for the for the camera, uh, the shots are at a higher angle, and you're seeing more of the underneath. Right. And maybe it's turning over your head or something like yeah. this. Plus, that but was a, what a gorgeous wing. Yeah. Gee, many. Yeah, I know the wing on the seven eighty seven is really, really beautiful. Wow, the way it flexes, yeah. the way it bows, just perfectly, and uh, yeah. the way it tapers, and it's just. And, really and nice. a funny thing is that it retains most of that bow sitting All on the way, ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's a pretty airplane. Pretty airplane. Um, obviously, better well, flying well, through plastics. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm guessing if you do, uh, uh, you know, ANA 787 in Google, you'll find this link, but, uh, but this video, but we'll put it, uh, Jeff will hopefully, I'm sure, put a and, link and, to it in the show and notes. And Clay, uh, I know you're going to be here in town next week to uh, receive an award, and, and uh, we'll talk about that next week. But Clay Lacey, for those of you who, who haven't been around long enough to learn who he is, Clay Lacey's a, a Wichita-born boy who became one of Bill Lear's very first dealers while he was still flying for United Airlines. And he set up his business at Van Nuys in California, and he's selling Learjets to movie stars and film production companies and so forth. And somebody approached him about doing some aerial camera work, and the rigs that had been available for aerial camera work up to that point were not very fluid, not very flexible. And Clay helped invent, well, led the development and invention of a, a gimbaled periscope-mounted camera rig in the belly of the Learjet. Uh, and another one on the roof that actually will take, you know, like a 35-millimeter motion picture camera mm -hmm. uh, and give them optically perfect shots. It can tilt. It can swivel. It it can let you zoom. Uh, not only is this Dreamliner footage a result of Clay's work, but Top Gun, uh, the Great Waldo Pepper, yeah. uh, just a host of stuff that you've seen where the airplanes were flying crazy around the sky and captured by this extraordinary camera work that was in all likelihood one of clay lacy's airplanes and very high possibility it was him flying left seat yeah right yeah beautiful stuff uh take a look when you get a chance um last week we talked about uh i think it was last week we talked about the management changes at piper aircraft and uh um and and at the time we speculated on what this might mean for some of their more notable programs um and the other shoe dropped this week and uh, Piper announced that it's suspending the light jet program. Uh, is that a – do we care? Uh, 
I feel really badly for the new employees that the the prior management had humped all over the United States to recruit to go down there to Vero Beach and work on this program because most of those folks now are without position. Uh, and I hope they're being taken care of commensurate with what they've sacrificed because uh, going back across the bridge to get the old job that you gave up to go to Vero, and that's probably not going to be the most welcoming environment, uh, although it may be you may have an exceptional ex-boss. Uh, but it also strikes me as a, a little bit of the conglomerate owning an airplane company and just doing what makes it cheaper to stay in business as opposed to what's more foresighted and preparing for the future. Uh, because they're conversation about the market not giving them the kind of return that they needed to make a profit on the airplane at the time they wanted, to me, smells like, you know, this is going to cost us for seven more quarters before we see a penny. Let's just right. drop it. Yeah, Jeb, what do you think? Is this a, right. a and deal? I don't, I don't know. that I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's an unfortunate outcome for a, what was turning into a fairly nice uh, program. Uh, I think there's probably still a market for it. Um, as is, uh, if they get to it, and if they get back to it in a couple of years, a couple more years after that, however, they'll have to rethink the whole concept, yeah, uh, because the technology will have evolved. Right, so, yeah, the state of the yeah, world moved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know where that leaves that program, um, I don't know. It could be that over the long run, uh, there will be a Piper Altair. Or some Piper single engine jet that might be you know be- better than this. I don't know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know for now it's certainly uh, been on, put on the back burner. Um, they'll still save all the files. Trust me. Oh yeah, I would but imagine. It, it, it it smacks to me of the same kind of short thinking, short sighted thinking, I should say, that caused Textron to uh, force Cessna to cancel the large cabin airplane that they were calling the Columbus. Uh, when they were well along on building a prototype, they'd started building a factory for it. Uh, the, 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 the logic reported at the time was, you know, the market downturn that started in late 07 and really hammered us in 08 and is continuing to this day. Uh, it's not a good time to be bringing a new airplane to market. Uh, it was kind of undercut by two and a half years of very strong sales of airplanes in the category the Columbus right. was targeted to break into. Right. Matter of fact, the only part of the business jet segment that has stayed really healthy has been the large cabin segment. Uh, so, uh, you know, the the uh, the line was uh, clearly the market for light jets is not recovering sufficiently and quickly enough. To allow us to continue developing the program under the economic circumstances we face, I, I don't know where uh, they get that from. The, the, yeah, the, I don't either. No, nobody's the, the, selling uh, light jets yet, really. A, I mean, a, a focus or, group. You know, yeah. I don't know where they get that. It's either. not like there there is no marketplace for light jets because nobody's really producing a light jet, really. You know, and uh, it's all well. Cessna sold got, a handful of uh, of Mustangs. Yeah, but they, they don't really. They, they but they're in denial about whether that's really a light jet. They they kind of. They're schizophrenic well, about that. Define define light jet. Well, that's yeah. I mean, so well by by the by the conventional industry accepted 
uh, long time frame of reference, light and shed is uh, anything that weighs no more than twenty thousand pounds. Yeah, I was going to say twelve five, but you know. and and we got the VLJ segment, which was initially you know being populated by airplanes that weighed less than eight thousand pounds. Uh, and the Mustang's gross weight is, if I remember right, somewhere in the eighty five hundred pounds region. Uh, so it's kind of closer to the very light than the typical light. Uh, and they're selling a few citations, and they're selling some Mustangs, and they're selling some Sovereigns, although that's been slow. Uh, and they're selling some uh, XLS Pluses, although that's been slow. Uh, but looking at how bad things are now and saying, wow, things are so bad right now, we, we won't sell any, when the airplane's not going to hit... The, certification and start delivery until 2013 2014 when things are swinging around again yeah i i think i think um um they they understand that and i think they're at maybe at a point where they can you know afford to maybe pull the plug but it, you know yeah it's a short-term business decision but uh it is what it is um yeah. there there are some realities here and there are some there really aren't any successful yet single-engine business jets, okay? No, and right now, pretty much they, all they of all them They generally are, have two engines. All of them are in questionable status. Uh, Cirrus yeah. has not resumed working on it. Diamond, conversely, has resumed test flying. It's D-Jet. And then Piper just pulled the plug. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that leaves us with only a small chance that the D-Jet will actually get into pr- production, you know, get certified and the whole bit. Well, uh, maybe, maybe it Diamond did, knows. It'd, be, it'd sure break things open a little bit. Yeah, maybe Diamond knows something we don't, and maybe um, they've got some better financial backing than, than Piper or, uh, or, or uh, Cirrus. So it, it is what it is. Um, yeah. Uh, Dave, do you? I was just sitting here thinking. Do you remember back in the eighties when I think it was Gulfstream uh, proposed that single engine bizjet called? Oh, the absolutely, Peregr- the Peregrine. Yeah, I remember that okay. completely okay. because, uh, uh, Jiminy, what was the guy's name that was running Gulfstream in those days? Uh, Brown Pinkston. Sorry, Brown, Pink- Brown Pinkston was the uh, uh, the uh, Washington guy. Yeah. Uh, 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 who was running the place, though? It's not coming to mind. But Paulson? There, Alan Paulson. Thank you. Paulson, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Paulson was behind that. He was also behind working with Sukhoi in uh, the uh-huh. former Soviet Union on a supersonic jet. That's right. Uh, neither of which came to fruition. Beechcraft actually had on the drawing boards a single-engine jet version of uh, an airframe that was going to grow out of the out of the starship, mm-hmm. and of course that never went anywhere either. And part of those, part of that program's not getting into it was related to the failure of the starship program, and part of it was uh, shelved early because there really wasn't a good engine match uh, yet. That, it was, that was a big part of the problem with the with those with those with those designs back then. Yeah. Um the the engines just weren't up to it as far as fuel consumption and and uh power and all that kind of thing. Well, and there was a period when Williams uh International the that came up with right. the small turbofans that right. have made things like uh you know the 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 Citation jet 
really take off. Uh, and the, the the Hawker 200, previously the Premier One, and so on. Uh, there was a period there when Mr. Williams would not agree to sell his engines to a program developing a single-engine jet. I remember that, yeah. yeah. Because of his opinion, and it was his company, so it counts, uh, was that until his engines, commercial versions, had exceeded a certain amount of time in service, so many cycles, and developed uh, a reliability level that was predictable, he didn't want to see a single. Yeah. And you know, jump ahead a little bit and the the Altair and the Diamond and the Vision were all powered by one Williams Inter- International engine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the they the company hit that mark where they were willing to do that. But back in the eighties, uh they weren't there yet. Mm-hmm. Hell, they didn't even have airplane they didn't even have a citation jet flying with two of them yet. That's right. Yeah. So so earlier this week, when we were when we were uh, uh, trading emails talking about the uh, the A380 emergency landing being a non-event, um, David, you you were re- you were relating a story about how when you were recently flying with one of your buddies in his uh, twin, speaking of light jets, um, a uh, twin-engine uh, light jet, and you were talking about how uh, uh, partway through the flight uh, you suddenly got an indication on the instruments that one of the engines was having trouble. And you both both went into the mode where you started to prepare yourselves and brief for the possibility of shutting down this engine and completing the flight on on one engine. Um, all a very very interesting story, and maybe we should have you tell it to us someday. But the part of it that I found that caught my attention was that you mentioned that in a in a one in an engine out in a one engine situation in this aircraft, you, the landing speed is higher uh, than normal. And that caught my attention because that struck me as being, at least to me, being counterintuitive. Um, what's the physics here? First of all, did I get this right? Do you land faster with one engine out? Yeah, you raise you raise the reference speed slightly, but not a lot in the particular case of the airplane we were in, which was a Citation Mustang. And what's the physics uh, here? Why do you land faster? Uh, it's not the landing part that you're worried about. It's the p- potential to have to go around on one engine. Uh, that's in play here. So you're trying well, to maintain more well, energy? That, that's, that's part of it. That's part, that's of, it. part Although, of it. The Mustang is not a transport category aircraft, so it is by, by rule not required to be able to uh, make a single engine go around. Uh, it, it, it's required to have some, some uh, uh, rate of climb on a single engine up to a certain density altitude. After that, you know, you're, either go, you're getting stayed where you are or you're going down. Um, but what's the other thing that's going on here is even though this is a, a um, pylon-mounted twin turbofan engine uh, configuration, um, and even though the adverse yaw when one is lost is rather minimal, uh, there is still some adverse yaw. Okay, now that has to be counteracted to maintain coordinated flight, and the the um, deflection of those controls exerts drag. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And therefore, to maintain control of the aircraft, um, as per the, the you know certification standards, you have to use a slightly higher approach speed. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, David, does that, does that jibe with your understanding of how it works, too, or in that particular airplane? 
Well, actually, since you can land the airplanes so much slower than the reference speeds for single engine, right? Uh, it's controllable. But there is there is some accuracy to that in most cases where you've got a single engine uh, shut down out of two, that airflow over the rudder to help you offset any adverse yaw. This airplane is very close to being eligible for centerline thrust designation hmm. because of how narrow it is in the back and how close together the engines are. Uh, but there's still you still got to crank in a little rudder and a little rudder trim. Uh, but the way it was explained to me by the guy that flies the airplane and trains at flight safety a couple of times a year for it was that the main interest here was in having enough energy to start a go around should it be necessary. Mm -hmm. And like Jeb said, there's a climb rate requirement uh, on on a single engine when you've got one failed on a twin. And this makes that climb requirement actually pretty nicely. Yeah, uh, because sure there's a lot of power in that little engine. Right. Now, now, and and just, we, we, you know, we don't want to completely real, reveal what's going on here, or who we're talking about here, but Jeb did make reference. What what airplane are we talking about? It was a Citation Mustang. Yeah, okay. It was a Citation Mustang. Uh, and real quick and dirty, we had an excess, uh, we had a, a high oil temp warning on the number two engine. Uh, and while the pilot in command and owner of the aircraft pulled out the checklist to go through the in-flight engine shutdown procedure. I started looking for alternate airports. It was night IMC and over Colorado, uh, moving into, (laughs) moving into Eastern New Mexico and then down into Arizona. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't exactly what you'd call the best of circumstances or or locations. It's night, it's IMC. We've been in icing and now we're looking at shutting down one engine. And just as quick as the book came out and I identified a couple of airports with more than enough room for us, the temperature dropped and continued to drop. And, and eventually, you know, over the course of the next six or seven minutes, returned to within three or four degrees of the other engine. Yeah, so everything went back to normal. Everything went back to normal. And this was the disturbing part for us because the airplane was checked out when we were at the destination. Uh, some sensors were checked. Some sensors were swapped. The engines were run. The, nobody could repeat the, uh, the, the, uh, the event. And we launched to come back to Wichita uh, without the, the, the comfort of knowledge that somebody found out why the oil temperature spiked the way it did. Right. Yeah, I so hate that. We, we put a sticky marker inside the check, uh, inside the POH to come up with that checklist for an in-flight shutdown quicker. Just in case you need it. <laughs> yeah. Jeb, why'd you laugh? Um, because that stuff never happens in severe, clear over JFK. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That you know, we'd we'd had to uh, we'd had to turn on the anti ice system a couple of times. Well, multiple times at three six zero, mm-hmm. thirty six thousand feet, and we we're still brushing on the top of the clouds and sub freezing temperatures, of course. Uh, and eventually, we climbed to three eight zero. Uh, in, in hopes of saving time, because every time we turned on the anti-ice system, the airplane lost 10 knots. <laughs> okay. the, the, the anti-ice equipment on that airplane is r- driven by bleed air right. off the compressor side of the engines. Uh-huh. So you'll lose thrust. The airplane slows down. 
Uh, all, all, of, all of this reminds me. I think it was. I think it was Alan Carpenter, uh, uh, first American, uh, or uh, no, no, it was um, uh, Gordon Cooper, first American uh, to orbit. Um, no, but okay. No, John Glenn. John Glenn was John the first. Glenn. John Glenn. Yeah. John Glenn was the first American. I don't know if it was Glenn or not, but uh, uh, one of the Americans, uh, early American um, single astronaut space shots. Um, shoot the guy up there. Someone asks him how the view is, and he says, "Another thousand feet, and I'll be on top." <laughs> <laughs> and I, every time I hear a story about, wait, we were three six zero, you know, the cloud layer was just above us, and I, I, every time I hear something like that, I remember that story. <laughs> That's very good. I like it. it, it, it the closest loop out, though. The nice thing about the particular airplane, uh, the Citation Mustang, uh, it's a straight tapered wing. Uh, it's not a swept wing. Uh, it's, you know, relatively small and light, uh, but the landing distances, which was the source of my, you know, what do we need for runway? Because that's going to dictate the minimum that I'm looking for. Uh, come to find out the, the landing distances called out by the book for a single engine landing are only 12% above the single engine landing distances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was predominantly because you're carrying a little more speed. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, equipped with thrust reversers? Uh, I do not know. I can find I out think, though. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. Why don't you see if you can figure that out? I mean, I, uh, it's they don't have thrust reversers on uh, the other. Uh, on the Citation jet line, but those are all Williams engines, and I believe the Mustang has the little Pratt series. Uh-huh. So moving on. Uh, by the way, that story makes me think that the big difference between me and Dave Higdon is that Dave has friends, he has buddies who own Citation Mustangs, and it's like, well, yeah, that's that's you know an unfortunate conclusion, an unfortunate outcome. Yeah, different. right. It's not my fault. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, he he bought it in spite of himself. That's right. Okay. Uh, David, you posted a link here for uh, my dream small plane trip around the world. Oh yeah. yeah. Take a oh, look yeah. at this and tell us what what tickled yeah. you about this. Oh, just the concept. What tickles me about it? I, you, you seem to like this idea. Maybe that's not a term. I that... love this idea. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. I love this idea. 76 days to fly 25,000 miles and go around the world uh, in a private airplane. Uh, oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. If I, had <laughs> the, if I had the money in a New York minute, and I'd write a book when I was done. Because uh, you're talking about... Oh, what were the costs that they quoted? Something like seventy-six thousand dollars for the trip, right? Uh, right. But that's and a plane registration fees nineteen thousand nine hundred and fifty bucks, uh, and that gets you in the list. But that that fee includes your hotels, your meals, uh, help with charts, all the paperwork. Everything uh, is fuel. Yeah, this is from uh, Air Journeys, yeah, they do uh, which job. specializes in taking people on guided flying tours. Uh, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm just one small lottery win. 79500 per person right. based on double occupancy plus a plane registration fee of 19500 
which means for the bride and I to go, uh, we're looking at uh, you're looking at two hundred grand Jimmy, before you bought all the plus twenty thousand, hundred eighty thousand plus souvenirs, of course. Yeah, yeah, you're looking at you're looking at two hundred grand, and that's before you pay. Uh, the, that's in the middle of the gas bill. Oh, and then this includes uh, uh, full-time services of a tour guide, uh, all your meals, all your hotel rooms, a, a, a tour director, all the service charges and taxes. Uh, Do they take the, care of all the governmental paperwork, too? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <sighs> yep. It always seemed to me that's the one. I mean, it's... Yeah, the, that's that's the thing that, that um, really, you know, in, in a way restricts me from spending a whole lot more time, or any time at all for that matter, going back and forth to the Bahamas. Oh, yeah? And, and yeah, that's a I, I relatively start, friendly destination. Exactly. Well, it's and, and it's not so much the... destination, but the international not so much, fees will eat you up. It's not so much... And it's not so much the Bahamas paperwork side, it's just the U.S. paperwork side. Yeah, and, and, and what I was referring to is every now and then you hear about somebody who's trying to do one of these solo around the world things, and, and, and you hear about them getting stuck, you know, like over in Asia or something because of some political situation, and they can't get the permits to fly through some airspace, and they're blocked for some long period of time. And it's just... You know, it's always seemed to me that that's that's one of the big. I mean, well, with, all, with all of the challenges of doing this kind of a flight, you know, there have there have been uh, episodes like that in in recent memory. Um, but generally, if you start tracing it back, it's it's someone's out of cash, and a little cash goes a long way towards getting you out of a country like that. I guess. Yeah. 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 Yep. But uh, the the folks that do this, uh, they're they're very experienced. They've been doing it for quite a while. They're, 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 you know, I would trust them to pull this off because they've pulled it off before. But you're basically looking at a little over a thousand dollars per head per day for a seventy six day trip, and. That sounds like a long time, but remember, we're not too many years away from when going around the world in 80 days was considered impossible. Yeah. But I can think of worse ways to spend a couple of hundred grand and fly 25,000 miles. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. No kidding. And, and, and if anybody wants to donate $200,000 to the cause of flying Dave and Annie around the world, uh, I'll put my contact information up well, elsewhere. Maybe, maybe we should make that a you know a UCAP thing. Well, you know we'll we'll do it uh, that for UCAP. too. Yeah, we'll do I, it for I wasn't UCAP. sure if you guys were interested. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it, it, so, yeah, you yeah, guys are grouping around. I'm I'm half serious when I say you should start a kick uh, kick. What do they call it? Kickstarter uh, uh, pro, uh, fundraising program. Uh, you know what? Kicks, is, have I got this right? Kickstarter. I think that's what it's called. Um, one one of the trips of a lifetime that was was lucky enough to come my way, lucky for me, was a Part 91 flight from Toronto to Paris and back for the, I guess it was the 1985 Paris Air Show. We were a Part 91 flight, even though it was a four-engine, 50-seat airliner. Uh, and we cruised in GA airplane territory, 185 knots. And had GA leg length restrictions, flying full fuel with 16 people on the aircraft and our luggage. Uh, I think our longest leg, and we really stretched it, was uh, about 800 nautical miles. No, I'm serious. You should start. It is Kickstarter. Kickstarter program. So it sounds like you're not familiar with Kickstarter. Kickstarter is this online uh, kind of crowdsourced fundraising 
uh, uh, system where you basically say, I want to do something, and but I need X thousand dollars to do it, and I want everybody to sort of invest slash donate for me to do it. And it's very, very successful. People are raising all kinds of money. This is exactly the kind of thing, you know, and it's not like, you, it's not like an investor thing. It's not like they own a piece of the flight or anything like that. People, you just have to promise them things like, you know, I'll send you a T-shirt from every nation I stop in or something like that. And uh, Oh, we love T-shirts. Yeah, so Kickstarter, you should do it. Right? Oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, look at it, Kickstarter. It, right? yeah. You might be surprised. You might be surprised at how much money you could raise for one of these kinds of projects. Maybe not $200,000, but... Well, and, and, and the nice thing about this trip, and I looked at the itinerary, uh, because, you know, the first question that comes up is, what's your overwater legs going to be like? Mm-hmm. Because those are the ones where you really look at circumstances and go, hmm, can I get there from here with what I normally carry? And the North Atlantic is a, 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 a trip accessible by a lot of GA airplanes on standard fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're going to do a lot of hopping. But that's okay. That's part of the fun of it yeah. is the stops along the way. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly yeah, so right. we'll start a Kickstarter, Kickstarter project called, uh, let's see, we'll call it Send Dave Around the World, please. Um, anyways. Yeah, I, of course, I have to say, you know, 800 miles, I can do that with you right now, <laughs> yeah. with, with the way my airplane's equipped. But yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Well, yeah, it, 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 we've, we've yeah. checked this out. The Comanche we used to have could do the Atlantic crossing. Yeah. Uh, you need to be real picky about weather and winds. Yeah, uh, because one of the legs is going to be pushing us uh, up to IFR reserves. Yeah, because you don't uh, want about the time we see landfall. You don't want to run out of gas thirteen miles short of your destination. No, no, that was, no it, you get really thing. wet. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> Finally, uh, we have a celebrity off-field landing of the week. Uh, not that the pilot was a celebrity, but the airplane is a celebrity. Uh, uh, Sean Tucker's uh, air show biplane, the uh, Oracle Challenger 3, uh, experienced not with Sean piloting. Um, one of his team members, Brian Norris, was uh, uh, probably ferrying it from one place to another, as happens all the time. Uh, and it had an engine failure over uh, over Bakersfield, California. And uh, and he set it down on a highway uh, it's seen enough. I'm reading part of the story here. Uh, Sean Tucker tells uh, uh, Aero News Net uh, that ferry pilot and team member Brian Norris did what he expected. Quote, he flew the aircraft like a professional, dealt with the situation as it occurred, and put together a great outcome by staying ahead of the airplane. End quote. Uh, Norris was on the, final, on the final leg home after a recent fuel stop, landed on a stretch of highway near Bakersfield, California, and encountered no significant damage in the process. He, he not only, I mean, he, and he probably could have managed this by himself, he apparently was flying um, in loose formation with another team member. And, uh, and, That's because uh, Sean has two airplanes that go on, that go on yeah. the circuit with him. The other one's an extra. And the other aircraft uh, being flown by uh, team member uh, Ben Freelove, uh, uh, was uh, managed to fly, you know, in the story they caught, they, they flew cover for Brian. Um, but basically he kind of kept an eye on things and helped him uh, spot uh, landing locations and, and probably contributed to the to the good outcome here. So uh, uh, congratulations to uh, Brian Norris uh, of uh, of the Sean Tucker team for uh, their, his successful uh, off-field landing of the week. You know, and I know they, they push these airplanes real hard and they're built out at the edge of the envelope anyways. Um, but this is like the second or third time that that one of Sean's airshow airplanes has gone down 
on a, like a ferry, well, not necessarily a ferry flight, but not an air show performance. Right? Well, what didn't we talk about him a year or two ago? About yeah, well, he had to jump out of one. He had to jump out one system. time, and uh, yeah, I think it was another time. So he actually lost that airplane, obviously, and uh, there may have been another one. I don't know, but uh, I'm sure they know about oil changes. You would think they're they're good people. They know their stuff. It's just uh, yeah. they just seem to have uh, bad luck, I guess. Or, or but 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 they did the right thing and they got it on the ground safely, and that's that's good. So congratulations to them. it was an everybody walks away. It was a good landing, and and no Ferris wheels were involved. <laughs> very Damn. important. Very important. Dude. That's right. That's right. Detail. Shout outs. What do we got here? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, look at they've all got my name on them this year. This week, that's really different. How'd that happen? I know. Usually, all have David's name on. Them. All right, let's see if we can work our way through here. Uh, first of all, from uh, from listener Rick Felty, uh, he gave us a lead to the fact that uh, a new aviation, not a new aviation museum, but an aviation museum um, that sort of existed semi privately is now open to the public here in uh, Weymouth, Massachusetts. It's part of the uh, Weymouth, uh, uh, former Weymouth Naval Air Station. Um, and uh, if you're at all interested in such things and you're in that part of the country, you might want to go take a look at it here. Uh, local, let's see, Aviation Museum opens at former air station in Weymouth. Uh, local history and aviation buffs won't have far to go if they want to see a number of artifacts tied to the former South Weymouth Naval Air Station. Um, and it goes on to talk about this. So this is a story in the patriotledger.com. But uh, if you're in that, that part of sort of southeastern Massachusetts, um, this would be a cool place. Sadly, the uh, the airport is is done for, um, long closed and and is being redeveloped. The runways are probably no longer runways, but they are preserving the museum that was part of the uh, the air station. So that's kind of cool. Uh, you guys got any before I go on with the others here? Go on. We'll, we'll, we'll let you do all the shout outs. Okay. Me. All right. Uh, let's see now. Uh, shout out to uh, Will Hawkins, uh, our, our buddy Will Hawkins, uh, and. Uh, uh, who uh, he actually also turned me on to the uh, Sean Tucker thing, um, but he also when he was listening to the episode where we talked about the MythBusters uh, uh, repair the airplane with duct tape, and we were wondering what airport that was, and uh, and I was half right. It is in Tracy, California, but it's not Tracy Municipal Airport. It's a, a smaller airport there called New Jerusalem Airport uh-huh. uh, in Tracy, near Tracy Municipal. Um, and uh, according to the satellite picture that's on uh, uh, Google Maps, uh, the runways are still open. And I actually asked Will if it's open, and he said the last time he flew in there, it's still open. So it's it may well be that they closed it temporarily for the purposes of this uh, MythBusters shoot. So New Jerusalem Airport in uh, Tracy, California. Um, uh, also on the subject of that MythBusters episode, I took as a homework assignment to try and figure out whether when they duct taped the entire airplane, did they duct tape the control surfaces. And I have nothing to report as of yet. Um, I, I started to watch the episode again on TV the other night and, uh, and and didn't quite make it that far in the replay. So I didn't get to the point where we had a chance to see the uh, um, to see the uh, the taping of the whole airplane. I did try and track down Carrie Byron to send her an email to ask her. But <clears throat> go figure, Carrie Byron does not make her email address very, very available to the general public. And so I could not find a... Does, uh, she, have, does she have a Twitter feed? Uh, she does, but that's got to be just overwhelmed, you know. So I, I suppose it's I could try. I could give that a try, but uh, and then uh, I was going to say you got to do it again. Yeah, yeah I'll try right. that again. Uh, and I, but I did go onto the MythBusters forums. I went into the MythBusters forums and I posted the question there, um, but I only got responses from one or two other 
uh, audience members who said that they thought that they taped everything, but I don't, I don't, I take that with a grain of salt. I want to hear it from, from the source. So, so I'm still working on that one. I haven't uh, tracked down Carrie and the answer to that question yet. I got, I got one more. Have you thought of any yet? I got one quick one. I just wanted to uh, point us toward the uh, 360 VR image shot inside the cockpit of a P-51C. Uh, yeah. And, and the reason I, I pushed this off the list, tell us about it. But I think we talked about this like a year ago or a while back. But tell us again. What is it? It's because it's cool. Well, it's it's like you were sitting in the cockpit and, and were able to pivot 360 degrees horizontally and pitch 90 degrees straight up and look at the in, inside of the cockpit. Uh, it's done with multiple captures of different images that overlap and then stitch together. And I've always been really impressed with it. What, what impressed me about this was the quality of the detail of the image. You can blow it up and read printing on things like the throttle quadrant. It is a P-51 Charlie. It's the Red Tail Project airplane. Uh, and if you're an airplane nut like some of us here, you might find exploring the inside of a P-51 Charlie cockpit uh, an, an interesting way to kill a few minutes. Yeah. And my thanks to my longtime good buddy, T., uh, who's flown with us many times. Uh, Jeb's met him, uh, sure. yeah, yeah. stayed at his house. Cool guy, uh, not a pilot, and is, is a listener. And I wanted to know, I wanted T to know that we're giving him a shout-out for giving us something really interesting to give our listeners to look at. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very Thank cool. you, T. Thank, thanks a bunch, T. Now, this is, um, I want to say his first name is Patrick, Pat St. Clair. The photographer of this uh, 360 degree, he's. Uh, I met him uh, a bunch of years ago because he's a buddy of our friend uh, Phil Weston. Um, yeah, met him at Oshkosh, and and I met St. Clair uh, a couple of different times there when back in the early days of when he was trying to figure out how to do this this 360 degree stuff, and he's obviously mastered it and uh, and is doing some really cool. It's, work it's really it. very trick. It takes a lot of patience. Uh, because if you do, if you go look at this link, you'll notice that there are no signs of where the camera is. You never see a tripod right. foot or anything like right. that in any of the in any of the tilts or zooms or pivots. So uh, I'm in just impressed. I'm in awe. Yep. Yep. Very cool. My last one here is a shout out to uh, aviation legend uh, Barry Schiff. Um, who uh, former airline pilot and writer and magazine author and 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 evangelist for aviation? Um, in addition to all the great things he's done over the years to support uh, aviation, he recently started a, uh, a sort of one-person scholarship program where he just basically said, "I'm going to put up three thousand dollars of my own money, and I'm going to give this money to some aspiring pilot so they can learn how to fly. I'm going to pay for their flight lessons." And uh, and he apparently announced this in one of his magazine columns or, or maybe on his website and invited people to write uh, 500 word essays on why they wanted to become a pilot and uh, um, and he's still accepting these until December 15th and uh, um, but he's basically just put his own money on the line I, I just think that's just very very uh, uh, commendable and uh, Barry is a very cool guy yeah and apparently he's kind of t he touched a, 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 a well, say I want to say touched a nerve but that sounds bad it's a good thing um, in that not only has he gotten applications for people who want 
to to get the scholarship, but people are sending him money uh, and and merchandise to support this program. Um, so you know, I think this is a, could be the beginning of a good thing. I've said in the past that I think we need to find out ways to make uh, uh, pilot flying license flying lessons free. Uh, to the student, and because uh, it would help everybody if there were more pilots. Um, yeah, so. you, you you're not going to get much disagreement here, and yeah. I'm going to save everything I got to say for another podcast. Okay, yeah. but uh, but uh, kudos to uh, Barry Schiff for for Abs- all of the absolutely. things he's done in his career, but uh, uh, especially right now for his uh, coming up with this uh, one man uh, uh, scholarship program. You can learn more about that at the GA News website, uh, and again, we'll put that Jeff will put that in the show notes for us. Jack, I do have something. Go ahead. Okay. Um, and forgive me for being a little slightly sarcastic. You? No. Uh, never no, happens. I know, I know that comes I've as a shock. never noticed that before. Yes, yes. But my shout-out is, is to uh, Lockheed Martin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations, gentlemen and ladies. Uh, another $24 million, uh, you've you've uh, gotten from the Pentagon here recently to uh, fix... The F twenty two that you made, yeah, fix is um, like big finger quotes, right? Fix, yeah, uh, yeah big big air quotes. Um, uh, there's a story on uh, Gizmodo about this. The sad, the title is the sad odyssey of the F twenty two, America's big broken toy. Um, Lee Graf says it all. The F twenty two has been okay to fly again after being grounded, cleared, grounded, then cleared once more, all within a year. And yet the Air Force still hasn't fixed uh, the, pro- the fundamental problem with the airplane. And the fundamental problem with the airplane is uh, the oxygen system isn't making oxygen and is causing the, the uh, pilots to become hypoxic. Um, no big deal. No big deal. I guess, I guess you know, I've I, I got to give the Lockheed Martin people uh, a shout-out here for, for cutting a contract with the DOD that doesn't include a warranty. <laughs> well, that was thinking ahead. Uh, really? Yeah. Are you serious? That's be- the, the, the DOD's paid another $24 million to get Lockheed Martin to fix the problem. Yeah, okay. That's all, that's all I have to say. Okay. You know, we should be in that business. We, we have definitely, well, you know, if we just kick up and more, kick up the, you know, to the next level here on the podcast, we might get there. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any other shout-outs, David? Let's let's start cooking with gas. That's Jeb Burnside. He's a freelance aviation writer and and editor, and he's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the internet, or do you really want them to know? Well, I'm not really sure I want them to know. Just, just, you know, if there's any photographs, just just, uh, turn off that feature of your browser. Um, but um, aviationsafetymagazine.com, jeburnside.com, aea.net. Occasionally on uh, avweb.com and uh, other assorted sundry uh, uh, sites. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer and an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, that aviation safety thing that Jeb just mentioned. I pop up there sometimes. Um, Let's see, who else? Or... Google me and find out what silly stuff I used to do. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. 
Yay! We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, did, was there something you were going to say? It won't let you live forever, but it will let you live longer. Becoming a pilot, going flying, spend time up there, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Man, I was really worried he was going to start singing there for a second. <laughs> run away, run away. AMFFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.